0: The word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. Then that very same day at evening, this is the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. And he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And now the word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sinning leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that through you, that though you Were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness." For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, which is everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and we pray that you would bless also the hearing of your word. May we be changed by it. May your spirit have freedom to use it in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, remake us by Him and help us to walk in the victory that He offers through His glorious resurrection. Amen. We mentioned last week that Easter is about Jesus' victory over sin and death, and we spoke specifically about what that victory is to look like, that victory that is still yet to come when our bodies, though dead, will be resurrected and will be glorified by him at his coming again. But Easter is about Jesus' victory over sin and death. And so, what does Jesus' resurrection do for me now? Is the question with regard to sin. On Easter Sunday, when we declare He is risen, we are reminded that His resurrection is about His body coming out of the tomb. And Paul assured his audience that we too, our mortal bodies, will one day come out of the tombs that hold them and will be resurrected to new life. But Paul appeals to the resurrection here in his letter to the Romans And he appeals to them, not just according to what is to happen in the future, but also what is expected of the present. He's speaking of the victory that is now ours. Not just the victory that is to come, but the victory that is ours today in this life. Through faith in Jesus, we are raised to new life, Paul says. We are raised to... With newness of life, we have a new start, a new beginning. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and all things have become new because Jesus is the one who is able to make all things new. And if we look forward to the hope of Him making all things new at His return, then we declare also that He is able to make all things new now in us. Paul says that we have been buried with Christ in baptism. And if we've been buried with him in baptism, then certainly we ought to expect that we have also been raised up to new life in him. Paul is challenging some false assumptions about the new life that we have in Christ. And he does so by exposing what this... New life does not look like, and by highlighting what it does in fact look like. And all meshed together in, in this this lengthy discourse of of the book of Romans, these chapters uh, six through through eight, particularly, are filled with a number of rhetorical questions, and we encountered a couple of them here in Romans six. He is exposing those those false assumptions. And he's highlighting what can be assumed about this life because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so first, let's consider what this new life does not look like. And I warn you, you, you might hear in what this life does not look like, some of the voices that we hear around us in our culture. First of all, this life does not look like Christian defeatism. Now here I use a very untechnical term. The second one, I'm going to use a very technical term. But Christian defeatism. Christian defeatism says, don't expect much from me. I'm only human. And the problem with that... Not only are we besmirching what it means to be human and made in the image of God, but also it lives far below the promises of Scripture. Christian defeatism starts the day with the expectation of losing. It starts the Christian life with the expectation of constantly never making it. Constantly letting God down and letting others down in our wakes. And Paul declares that Christian defeatism is not, is not the character of this new life that we have in Christ. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, the more I keep sinning, the more God's grace is just poured out and it's just so good because it's not about me. That's kind of a a, a spiritualized way of promoting Christian defeatism. And we hear it all around us. Again, don't expect much from me. I'm only human. The second thing, and I told you this is the technical one, the second thing that this new life in Christ does not look like is something that, that we call Christian antinomianism. Now, I warned you antinomianism i think anti is against something Namas, a greek term that means law in other words a complete lawlessness of life christian antinomianism sounds like this don't ex- don't hold me to a standard i'm free in christ a little bit different kind of the same kind of the same of that christian defeatism but a little bit more in your face. Don't hold me to any standard. I'm free. I'm like a Christian free spirit. I just do whatever I want because Jesus has set me free. But Paul says in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. God forbid, some translations say, Paul is calling us and he's reminding us of the new life that we have in Christ. And he is calling us away from those voices that would tell us that we're only human and therefore we're only going to be a big mistake in life. And we have no victory. And he's calling us away from those voices that tell us that because of our freedom in Christ, we can just live however we want. No no expectations can be had of us. No standards can be can be placed before us. Why does Paul tell us that this new life, this victory that we now have in Christ does not look like these? Well, because of grace. We often have a very watered down and very minimalized idea of what grace is. You know, grace is just kind of Missing out on consequences. It's just, you know, God happens to think certain things about us. He happens to like us enough to not punish us. That's a, a horribly minimized idea of what grace is. Grace is God's working in our lives. It is his power and his life that he gives to us when he works in our lives. And the work of grace, God through His grace is at work in our lives for a, to accomplish a couple of restorations, to restore our relationship with God and also to restore His image in us. Amen. You see, grace is at work in our lives, not just to miss the boat of, of bad consequences for bad choices we made, but grace is at work in our lives to transform us. By bringing us back into fellowship with God, by bringing us back into fellowship as His people with one another, the work of grace is about transforming our lives, not just letting us off the hook in the end. You see, grace for Paul is not license. It's not a license to do whatever you want, it's not a blank check, it's not a free pass. Grace is God's work in our lives. And His work is always restoring. His work is always transforming. And so Paul says, look, the grace of God is at work in you. Therefore, get rid of those voices of defeatism and get rid of those voices of just unfettered do-what-you-want-ism. You see, these two ideas, Christian defeatism and Christian antinomianism, these two ideas are not merely misguided. They are lies. And as such, they will always misguide us. They will destroy faith by either stagnation or by callousness. The one will tell us, to give up and say, I can't. And the other will tempt us to dig in our heels and say, I won't. I can't and I won't are two statements that ought never be in the vocabulary of God's people. For we are His covenantal people. We are people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. We are people in whom the Spirit of God is residing if we are indeed His. And so there is a victory that is ours even now in this life. He counters our tendency, Paul does, toward these two mistakes on a couple of fronts. He tells his audience, the Romans, to remember something. He tells them, remember that you have died with Christ in baptism. Recall to your minds that you, are now, that you have died with Christ. He puts it a variety of ways. We have died to sin. He says very plainly. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death we should walk in newness of life, having been raised up with him. He also uses a little bit of cause and effect. He says, if we are united together in his death, then we are also raised together in the likeness of his resurrection. And he puts it very, very boldly when he says, our old man was crucified with Jesus so that... He gives a couple of consequences so that the body of sin might be done away with and also so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Here he's talking about just not being a slave of sin. And so, you know, yeah, we don't want to be a slave of sin, but we'll still entertain sin in our lives. Because there's a difference. Paul says, no, 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 no. If you give yourself to sin, you're a slave of that sin. It makes no difference. The distinction between, oh, I continue on sinning because that's just who I am, and, oh, well, I'm a slave of sin. He says that's a false difference. If you continue on sinning, then you are by nature a slave of sin. It's almost as though Paul is is, is appealing to our proveness. You say you're not a slave of sin, okay? Prove it. It's like it's like the man who says, "Hey, look, you know, I I could quit if I wanted to. Really? How about you give that up for Lent then? Let's see forty days without it." Paul says we are going to be either slaves of sin and unrighteousness or we're going to be slaves of God and righteousness. And he says if we make ourselves to be slaves of God and righteousness, then we are on the path toward holiness. And notice what Paul says, the end of that path toward holiness is eternal life. You see, we in our... our, uh, kind of modern context. We like to get those things backwards. We like to we we see oh our faith in Jesus is an exchange and we get eternal life. And holiness is kind of a tack on that we may or may not get to. But hey, in the end God will make us holy cuz you know, nobody can get to heaven without being holy. So maybe death sanctifies us in some way. That is a terribly misguided theology. Paul says that we have been raised to new life in Christ. He has made us new in Jesus. In baptism we've been buried with Him and we've been raised up with Him and now we ought to give ourselves as slaves to God so that He might make us holy, so that in the end we might inherit the eternal life that has been prepared for us. And so he says, remember, remember that you have died with Christ in baptism. Remember that baptism. Remember that you have been buried with him, you have died with him, and you have been raised up with him. But he appeals and he encounters, encounters these mistakes on a second front. Not just remember that you have died with Christ in baptism, but he says consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The one remembering is about recalling to our minds what has happened. Consider yourself is kind of a, a calling to arms about how you're going to think and how you're going to approach today and how you're going to approach this life. Consider now yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You see, we have a new starting point in Jesus. Our starting point for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, those who have been baptized into his church, our starting point is not Genesis chapter 3. Our starting point is not failure. Our starting point is not the fall our starting point is John 20. When Jesus said, Peace be with you. Amen. Receive the Holy Spirit. I love that word spirit. Not just because obviously it's in reference to the Holy Spirit. But I love the imagery that comes with that term spirit in both Greek and Hebrew. Greek Numa and in Hebrew ruach. The word spirit is about, it, it, it encompasses a variety of, of, of other terms. Those terms mean breath, wind, or spirit. And it was the, the breath of God, the spirit or wind of God, that brooded over the chaotic waters in the creation. And the one who brooded over the chaotic waters before creation is the one who broods over our chaotic lives as He is recreating us. You'll remember in creation that God formed man of the, the dirt and He breathed into him the breath of life the wind of life, or the spirit of life. Though we forfeited the breath of life in the fall of Adam, the second Adam, having defeated sin and death, he breathes his life-giving breath upon us once again. It had to have been startling and confusing on that first Easter evening. When the disciples are gathered, they're terrified. There's already been reports of the risen Jesus. Mary and the other ladies have already returned from the tomb. John and Peter have already run to the tomb and recognized that it was, of course, empty. But they're still hunkered down, hiding. Still protecting themselves. Still fearful of what might happen to them. And when Jesus comes in, He speaks those two words over them. Peace. Peace be with you. And they're taking Him back. They don't understand. They don't know what to make of this. And He reminds them again. He says, peace be with you. And then He breathes. Whew. Receive the Holy Spirit the one who is able to make all things new, the one who is able to recreate us because he's the one who created us, that one is able to give new life. He is able to raise us up with him. And so what does this new life look like? It looks an awful lot like the resurrected Lord Jesus the the put-back-together one. You see, peace is not the absence of conflict, per se. You can have peace even in the midst of conflict. You can have peace in the midst of trouble. You can have peace in the midst of turmoil. Peace, instead, is the stilling and stabilizing presence of God in the midst of life. Whatever life may hold, we can have the peace of God. He can can still us. He can stabilize us. Because God is always at work bringing order to our disorderliness. He is always at work bringing healing to our brokenness. He is always at work bringing comfort to our restlessness. He is at work offering us His peace. He is at work Telling us, don't listen to those voices of defeat and lawlessness. Don't listen to those voices that say you'll never make it. You are only a failure. You are only fallen. And don't listen to those voices that say it doesn't matter anyhow. Listen to the voice that says, Peace be with you. Listen to the voice that says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Let Him brood over you. Let Him recreate you. But what about that idea of baptism? It's interesting that Paul continually bringing up the imagery and the word itself of baptism here in Romans 6. He says that we've been buried with Christ in baptism, that we've been raised up to new life in baptism. See, baptism is not just some outward sign or testimony that we make of God. Instead, baptism is about an inward reality of grace. In baptism, we are being brought into the covenantal life of the church. Baptism is about entry into new life. And that new life looks like the life of the church. If it's just an outward sign, why not just do away with it? You know, update it. If it's just kind of a testimonial thing, why not we all get, you know, matching tattoos or something? Baptism, though it is far more than a reminder, it does serve to remind us of a a few things, a couple of which I want to mention just very briefly. Baptism reminds us that we cannot do this alone, that we need a family, because in baptism we're being brought into the family of God. We're being brought out of our aloneness and into the, the togetherness that we find in the church. But baptism also reminds us that holiness does not just happen naturally. It comes to us as we give ourselves to God through various means. Baptism is a means, it's a physical thing that God invites us to to do a spiritual work in us. And holiness in our lives will not just happen based on natural growth and progression. We must give ourselves to God through means through the reading of Scripture, through prayer, through worship with with His church, through doing good works. None of us will be made holy just naturally. But holiness is what the world needs. And holiness is what we need. And holiness is what Jesus is able to offer us through his resurrection. Because his risenness, it is about what is to come, but it also begins to work backwards and change what is now. And his risenness reminds us that we have a victory that is ours even now. We have victory in Christ to not live for ourselves, to not live for sin, but to live for God and for Him faithfully. And He is able to put back together the disorderliness and the brokenness and the restlessness of our lives. May we yield ourselves to Him and may He do that great work. Let's pray. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.